0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and let's open together to the Old Testament book of the Psalms, Psalms 133, our text this morning. The title of the message is Dwelling in Unity. Well, this is the day we've all had on our calendars for quite a while Unify Sunday. We're calling it Unify Sunday because the staff and our leaders have sensed for a few years now that our schedule of three morning worship services and two Sunday school hours was having some unintended effects on our fellowship. For one, it was causing families to have to make a choice when their children reached a certain age, whether they would continue in their adult departments where they had forged relationships for years or would they worship with their children. And that's not a choice any of us would like to make and it's not a good thing. So secondly, our three worship services had had over the years segregated themselves pretty much by age. And your pastors and I strongly believe that a healthy church has those in every age group and range and every level of spiritual maturity. So this change of schedule is at its core an attempt to reshuffle the deck, if you will and try to create a better and more equitable distribution of the church family for the purpose of fellowship and the purpose of unity ultimately. I guess we could have called it Reshuffle Sunday but we are after all Baptists and so, we're going to call it Unify Sunday. Well, if you attended services regularly this summer, you will recognize our text, Psalm 133, is one of the 15 Psalms of Ascent that we believe were sung and recited by Jewish pilgrims in the ancient world as they made their way up to the holy city of Jerusalem to worship the Lord there. I've been saving this particular Psalm for today because its words are apropos to our occasion. So, let's read it now, Psalm 133, Behold. How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessings, life forever. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Now this little psalm is short, it's rather simple, it's construction, but undeniably it is profound and it is relevant in all of its assertion. It begins with the thesis statement, that is a declaration of truth or doctrine, just a very simple truth statement. And then the author, who many believe to be King David, illustrated that truth with two metaphors. And finally, he gives the ultimate reason in verse 3 behind the truth that he establishes in verse 1. So, let's unpack it in the order that he wrote it. And then at the end I want to speak directly to our church family with some application. So the psalmist gets right down to his thesis in verse 1. He says, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now that seems like a self-evidential truth. It's a good thing when brothers get along. I have only one brother, my only sibling. And I will be honest with you, we needed this verse a lot when I was growing up. Because we didn't always get along, and we truthfully don't always get along now. If you have a brother, you'd likely understand. It's true in a home setting, we know that, but it's also true in a nation. I had a meeting with our police chief uh, this week, and he was telling our committee that the vast, vast majority of violent crimes in this country are domestic in nature. Family member against family member. David says it's good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. But also it's true in a church, and that's our setting today. And sadly it happens too often that churches earn a bad reputation for lack of unity. Well well, the context of these three verses many believe was of David's coronation as king. Remember that God had set aside Saul to be the first king of Israel and he failed miserably. And then God set aside David to be his replacement. Saul was of uh, the tribe of Benjamin, but David was of the tribe of Judah. Remember there were 12 tribes in Israel altogether, together and they didn't always get along. And, and so the belief is that David gave this psalm as an encouragement to those 12 tribes to unite under his leadership. And he said, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. And of course, if that's true in a home, it's true in a nation, it's true in, in a church because in the church we have familial relationships, don't we? God is our Father, and we refer to fellow Christians as brothers and sisters. But you will notice that he doesn't simply say that it is good to tolerate one another from a distance. We have a couple of sayings in that regard in our vernacular. We say good fences make for good neighbors, right? We say live and let live. That means we need to tolerate one another even if we don't live near one another. But that is not what he means. He says it's good and pleasant to dwell together. That that means in close proximity, doing life with one another, interacting on a regular basis with one another. He says it's good when we can do that in unity. Now having stated his thesis, the author then uses two metaphors, one from history and the other from geography to illustrate his thesis. And here are the illustrations, verse 2. He says, it is, that is unity is like the precious oil upon the head." Coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes." Now for most of you those illustrations won't mean very much, but for the people to whom they were originally written in the ancient world they were very clear and very helpful. Uh, First there is the metaphor of history. He says, unity among brothers is like the anointing oil which was used to set aside Aaron. And remember that Aaron was the brother of Moses. And with Moses, God established His sacrificial system. After He led um, the slaves out of Egyptian bondage, God met with Moses and He said, here's how I am to be worshipped. He gave him the Ten Commandments and He gave him the sacrificial system. And Moses was to set aside his brother Aaron as the priest who would administer this sacrificial system. Aaron, his family, and their descendants were set aside as holy unto the Lord. And this was inaugurated, set into motion with a ceremony in which Aaron was placed in priestly garments and a costly oil was poured all over his head and it dripped down upon those costly garments." You can read all about that in Exodus chapter 29. And this anointing with oil was symbolic of God's blessing and approval. And we see that many places in the Bible. For example, most famously in David's most famous psalm, the 23rd psalm, he said that thou anointest my head with oil. In Hebrews 1:9, Jesus was said to be anointed with the oil of gladness. And so, for David to compare the condition of brothers dwelling in unity to the anointing oil that was used to set aside Aaron to the priesthood was a positive thing indeed. Well, why was it such a positive thing? I think for 3 reasons. Because the oil that was used to anoint Aaron and set him aside was rare. Uh, It was hard to come by. And I think you'll agree with me that in our culture unity is increasingly rare. And it seems to be becoming increasingly rare even in the context of the local church. And because it is rare it is valuable. When you have experienced unity either in your family or your church you want to keep it. You want to hold on to it. That is my prayer every day. When I became the pastor here, this church was known for its unity. And I've often remarked that my first prayer most mornings is, Lord, don't let me do anything to mess it up. And that's the truth. That's how I pray most mornings. Is, Lord, don't let me mess up the unity of First Baptist Church of Keller. We want to keep it that way because it's rare and it's valuable. And thirdly, it's attractive to others I hear it from visitors all the time. When they come here and visit they say, we feel at home here, there's a sense of peace here. We were welcomed here, and and it's attractive. And, And that anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head was infused with aromatic spices and perfumes, and people could smell it for yards around. And they came to see what was going on. They they were attracted to it. And when our church is known for its unity in the community, others are going to be attracted to it. But there's a second illustration he uses, this time from geography. Look at verse 3. He says, speaking of this unity, it is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, the dew of Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is in the northeast portion of Israel, And it is unlike the rest of the geography of the nation. It is a high, snow-capped mountain peak. And the snow from Mount Hermon melts in the spring and it trickles down and becomes the Jordan River, which eventually empties into the Sea of Galilee where Jesus performed many of His miracles in that area. And then it goes out the southern side and terminates in the Dead Sea. And we tend to think of Israel as an arid and a desert place, and it is for the most part. But Mount Hermon is an exception to that. It's not like that at all. Its precipitation flowers the entire region. Been watching the news, you see what's going on in Portland, Oregon. Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Brother Lawrence Duhon and I traveled out to Portland with the possibility of planting a church there in the next year. And we invite you to be in prayer for that. But as we were descending into Portland out the left side of the plain, Mount Hood filled up the view. And it was amazing how large and beautiful it is. It was a clear day, which is rare for that part of the country. And we admired the snow-capped peak of Mount Hood all the way into Portland. And then the next day we were taken on a tour of the entire region by our host. And then we got to the base of Mount Hood. He said, Mount Hood is the life-giving water of all this region. All of the drinking water for this entire portion of the country comes from the snow melt off of Mount Hood. And I thought of these verses and that was true and has been true of Mount Hermon in the nation of Israel for for many years. And and, and I thought about that the importance of the precipitation that comes because of the elevation of those two mountains. It, It reminded me of three things. First of all, it is refreshing. He says it's like the dew, the precipitation of Hermon. Now, when we have unity and people are attracted to it and they become part of it, it refreshes their soul. This world is known for its disunity. The church ought to be, a, ought to be different. Would you agree? The church ought to be a place where there's a respite from the status quo of one upsmanship and gotcha from the status quo. And not only is the unity of the church refreshing, it is life-giving and sustaining. The unity of the church is the moisture upon which the fertile soil where the gospel is planted can grow and produce fruit. When there is disunity in the church it stifles the growth and the fruit production of its members. And that's the third point is because of the moisture of the unity in a church it keeps us from drying out and becoming unuseful. I know many a church that has dried out from disunity over the years and become set aside as unuseful in the Lord's kingdom. May that never happen here. Well he's given us his thesis. He says it's good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. and Then he gives us two illustrations of of what it's like. He says it's like that anointing oil which is rare and valuable and attractive. And then he says it's like Mount Hermon whose precipitation flowers the region and makes us malleable and, and, and gives moisture that fruit may be produced to the church. But then in verse 3 he sums it up. He says here's the reason why unity is so important. Look at it. He says it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion for there the Lord commanded the blessing Life forever. Now, get this clear. Unity is not just something that we should wish for. Unity is not just something that we know would be preferable to disunity. He is saying that the God of heaven commands his people to dwell in unity. God is the one that has proclaimed the blessing, he has commanded the blessing. Of unity. Isn't that strange that God would command a blessing? We tend to think of commandments as prohibition. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. But God often commands positive things and beneficial things and blessings. He commands the blessing of unity on the church. Now now, this is somewhat hard to grasp because we have been conditioned to believe that salvation is a work of God. Would you agree? We didn't save ourselves. He saved us. And yet, we are commanded to walk in unity. Ephesians 4.3 says, we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Now, if we have unity in the church, it's because of the Spirit's presence, but we participate in the keeping of the unity and the production of that unity. And so, he says, be diligent. Do you know what that word means? It means work hard. Work hard to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We we tend to think of unity as a passive thing, that it just sort of settles down upon us from above. But the Bible indicates that unity in the church is something to be worked for, to have a strategy for. We know that salvation is all of God, but we participate in our own sanctification, don't we? If we're going to grow in grace we have to study our Bibles regularly, we have to be people of prayer, we have to regularly associate with one another in contexts like this in corporate worship. And in a similar way there is corporate sanctification of the church writ large. That yes, our common denominator is faith in Christ and the indwelling presence of the Spirit. But if that unity is to thrive and be preserved it takes action on the part of the members. And that leads me forth and finally to, to the application. And I want to speak specifically and very pointedly to the membership of First Baptist Church of, of Keller. If you're a guest here today, you're welcome to stick around and listen. But I'm talking to the family today. As I've thought about these changes we're making, I've thought about the position that we're in pretty deeply over the last few weeks. And, I had to admit a few things. We've got a pretty good thing going here. The Lord has given us an incredible geographic location. We're located at the intersection of two major highways. There's over 50,000 cars a day that pass by here. If we don't reach the community, it's not because of lack of access, is it? We're in a growing city with economic health, we have proximity to any sort of transportation you could imagine. Beyond that, the Lord has granted us stability. We are a church that has been in this area for over 130 years. And so we are known for our high view of Scripture, high view of God, our our theological soundness. We have a a well-trained and a long-tenured staff here. We have wonderful Sunday school teachers. We have a dedicated and servant-minded deacon body. In addition to that, the Lord has granted us incredible financial health. We have been debt free for over a year now. We have beautiful, comfortable facilities, the best we've ever had. And we have raw land yet to grow if the Lord would see fit to grow us. And those are our wonderful advantages that we enjoy. But I'm reminded of what this same psalmist said, if the Lord doesn't build the house, the laborers labor in vain. We are going to give an account one day for all of these advantages and and blessings that the Lord has placed into our stewardship for a brief time. And I hope you will join me in praying that we don't do anything to mess it up. Now, not wanting to mess it up sounds like we put our hands behind us and, and do nothing. It's what I tell my four children when we go into an antique store, put your hands in your pockets don't touch anything. When we go to someone's home, our goal is to leave before we break something. <laughs> That's not what, what I mean. We, we need to be proactive and engaged in preserving the unity. And so I, I've listed 10 things that are gonna appear on the screen that can disrupt the unity of a church. Now the body often speaks of the church in terms of a, a body. Paul talked about different parts of the body. The eye can't say to the hand I have no need of you and so forth. And and so these are all body parts that will help us I hope remember these are things that we can do to disrupt the unity of the fellowship here. Number one is a week back, a week back. Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. There's a misunderstanding about church unity is that the way to have unity in the church is not to believe anything. Not to hold anyone accountable for anything, just live and let live and, and that we'll call that unity. That is not unity. Unity must be based on truth. And so our church must redouble our efforts to, to speak the truth to this community. Disunity comes when we waffle, when we're unclear theologically, when we're imprecise about the gospel. Now the second thing that can lead to disunity is a hard heart. Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. If we allow sin to go unchecked among us, if we don't love one another to hold one another accountable to the convictions and the Uh, confession that we have made, it won't be long before there's disunity in the church. And then thirdly, there's a stiff neck. Proverbs 21, 29, 1 says, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. If we can come sit under the Word of God week after week, year after year, and it not have any effect upon our sanctification, our neck has become stiffened and Soon our fellowship will be broken. Fourthly, loose lips can disrupt the unity of the church. Proverbs 16.28, a perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Gossip, innuendo, speaking much and listening little. These are ways in which the unity of the church is disrupted. And, and similarly to loose lips, something else that, that we can have that Leads to disunity is thin skin. Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. We don't have to respond every time we perceive someone has shorted us in, in the least way. And the truth is most of the time when, when we think that we simply misunderstood. We call that a misunderstanding. And so For that not to cause disunity in the church we must have to assume the best about one another, not the worst. If your default setting is to think the worst about another person you are going to question everything they say. But if you are thick skinned you overlook a fault. And if we don't overlook a fault it is not long before we have a vented spleen. You all know what that means right? I, I ran that by some younger people. They never heard of that. Uh, that's an old Southern expression for letting everyone know what you don't like all the time. James 1.20, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. When we blow up in anger, every time something sets us off, it disrupts the disunity of the church. And, and then seven, there, there's dull ears, really itching ears. 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Paul warns that that there's going to come a day before Christ returns where even in the context of the church, people don't want to hear the truth. Paul asks a rhetorical question to the Galatian church. He says, do you hate me because I tell you the truth? Those with itching ears don't want the truth. They want to pay someone to tell them what they want to hear. That disrupts ultimately the unity of the church. In fact, the church ceases to exist over time if that is its teaching. Number 8. Something that disrupts the unity of the church is entrenched heels. Ecclesiastes 3:1 There is a time for everything under heaven. Probably the most dangerous sentence to any organization, including the church, is we've never done it that way before. And what happens is we, we dig in our heels and we say, we shall not be moved. And sometimes there are occasions when we should not be moved. Last Sunday morning I quoted the brother of Jesus, Jude in his epistle when he says, let us earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There are certain doctrinal truths that we dare not move from. We need to dig in our heels and draw a line and say this far and no more. But most things don't fall into that category. Most things fall into the category of preferences and at the point of preferences we must be ready to move and change for the glory of Christ and the good of the body. Number nine, something that can disrupt the fellowship of the church are clenched fists. That is territorialism. What's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it. First John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. We need to have open hands, ready to give to a brother or sister in need. This is what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind, this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who didn't count his deity something to be held on to tightly. He didn't clench his fist and say, I'm staying here in heaven. He emptied himself and he poured himself out for the good of others. That's the attitude that every believer should take on. And then tenthly, finally, something that can cause disunity in the church is wandering eyes. Exodus 2017, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, if if you want to destroy the fellowship of the church, there's a lot of ways to get there. But anecdotally, as I have observed many churches in my lifetime, there, there are two primary ways to disrupt the fellowship of the church. One is through misuse and misappropriation of money, and the second is with sexual immorality. And so that's why I saved this one for last Wandering Eyes. Do not covet what your neighbor has, that is, his money or his property, and do not covet his wife, his spouse. Drink water from your own source. Well, something to think about. And as I wrote those down this week and reflected upon them and looked up verses many more than the ones I quoted to you, by the way, all of these are very biblical. And so it brought conviction in my own heart. And I began to ask the Lord to show me areas that, that I have violated His will in any of these Ten areas, and he, he was gracious to do that. And you read on the screen today that the, the Lord is a God of forgiveness, isn't He? Scripture says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so what I want to ask you to do right now is just to bow your head and close your eyes. As I read back through that list of 10 things that can disrupt the unity of the church, will you ask the Lord to search your heart? to see any of these attitudes or actions are within you or have been in the past? And if the answer to that is yes, would you just simply in your own heart confess that as sin to the Lord and repent of that and turn from it and receive His forgiveness? Today is a a new day. Not only are we starting a new schedule, this is a great opportunity to renew your walk with Jesus. And so is there anywhere in your life where, where you've had a week back where you should have stood firm for the gospel and you didn't? Has your heart grown cold over the years, even through constant exposure to the truth? Is your neck stiffened? Have you been unwilling to change as the Lord has pointed out areas in your life that needed to? Have your lips been loose? Have you been guilty of gossip or slander in in any way? Have you thought the worst rather than the best of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you been thin skinned and quick to anger? Have you expressed that in public in an unwholesome and unrighteous way? Have you sought out teachers that would tell you what you wanted to hear rather than the truth? Have you become entrenched in your preferences and unwilling to change for the glory of Christ and the good of others? Are you holding your possessions tightly with clenched fists, unwilling to help those in need? And have your eyes wandered with covetousness or jealousy over what belongs to another person? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I thank you for this your Word which has pointed out to us um, ten danger zones for disunity. Father, you tell us in the New Testament that all Scripture is God-breathed. That is, it's authoritative and it's profitable, it's helpful for us. It rebukes us, it corrects us, it trains us in practical righteousness. So, Father, I pray that it would have that effect today. Father, if there are any of these areas and maybe others that we could have named that that we have fallen short as individuals or as a body would you graciously bring that to our attention by your holy spirit and now father we confess those things as sin lord we want nothing to negatively impact the unity of this your body We, we we believe the thesis statement of psalm 133 that it is good and pleasant For brothers to dwell in unity. We pray that that would be our reputation and the reality for us in days and years ahead. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We love you. Use us for your glory, we pray as a family. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.